Greetings ladies and metagents, and welcome to this narration of the web series The Lost Terran. If you are new to the series, there is a playlist listed down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 11 It had been 15 minutes since Rix and Reggie had departed and Munta was still a mess. The walking frame was confining, and the secondary waste disposal system of the Esperanto was annoyingly dumb. It worked and was just as overbuilt as the rest of the vessel, but that was all it did. No extra sub-processes, no obvious network protocols that would tell Munto more about the Terran or the TSC beyond the little than Munto still had cached from the TSC database. True to his words, Rix had managed to get a scroll talking to the printer, but Munto could tell that the printer wasn't happy about it. Munto still was displeased at how the graphical interface worked and because they didn't have the right receivers to try and connect directly via the remote desktop protocol. They were stuck using a mixture of voice controls and the graphical interface to manipulate the default template into some semblance of adapter that the comparatively clumsy Terran could fit so that Manto wasn't so restricted. The charge of the walking frame was slowly creeping up, but Manto was preoccupied with getting the adapters fitted. The sooner the Terran was able to produce their own power, the less risk to both vessels because of lack of energy systems aboard Manto's, well, self. It was hard for Munto to consider that they were not separated from themselves. It had happened initially with the walking frame, but that had been a mere temporary disruption, and walking frames weren't unheard of to be lost when exploring. No, it was having been removed and disconnected from themselves that bothered Munto the most. The closest organic equivalent that Munto could think of would be the removal of the head from the body, the head still living, and the body simply existing. Manto wanted to see themselves via the augmented ocular senses of one of the appendages of the walking frame, but that would have to wait. The walking frame was still charging and the printer was not being cooperative about accepting the modified template. It was at this point that Rix came in. Any luck? he asked. Limited thus far, but I believe that I have drafted an updated template. The printer is not wishing to accept a template though, Manto said, looking at the turret. Oh yeah, I figured that out. You just have to long press the command to get the override going. Not sure why your printer wants it like that, but uh, any non-standard template it wants some sort of extra confirmation, Rick said, wrapping a hand at the scroll. Mantu tried this, and the print command went through this time. That is not the intended operation of the system. I'm uncertain as to why it is behaving that way, Mantu commented. It's probably the heuristic refining built into the scrolls. Slowly changes the controls based on the use of the system. It's pretty used to the way I use it, so it probably figured that that's how I wanted it to handle the data, Rick shrugged. Monto glanced between the scroll and the Terran. I doubt that explanation, but I will accept it at face value until a better and more logical explanation is available, Monto said. Back to sounding like a machine again, Rix remarked. Then you whine like an organic, Monto retorted, taking a full second to see if this interaction tactic would help matters. Rix's head spun around and a curious look took over his features. He began to cough, making a kind of heavy breathing sound, similar to how the Terran chuckled, but much more involved and far less voluntary. After approximately ten seconds, it subsided and Rix looked back at Munter. And you're getting to be more Terran by the minute. I'll admit, I had my doubts when I first met you. I wouldn't have believed that you were of Terran construction as you were, but I can believe it now, Rix said, sitting down. Munter thought about this. For what reason did you have suspicions otherwise? Mantu prompted. I just couldn't believe that they'd designed non-homicidal artificials without a sense of humor. But I figured maybe it was a kind of holdover. Like something from the military, Rick said, gesturing vaguely. 
Monta checked the lexicon for what military meant for a Terran and was uh, less than thrilled. Martial might was, even more than toilet humor, highly central to Terran cultures. This was not to say that it was obviously wholly representative, but it featured entire subsections of the lexicon and what little of the TSC database that was cached, but which Monto hadn't actively processed. And while they should be taking offense at the suggestion of an artificial being involved in the termination of other sentience, Monto let it pass. There was undoubtedly some longer cultural connotations on that regard, which they would have to have Rex explain. Given the construction of the first tacit was from a military vessel, I can see where that wouldn't be a reasonable assumption. But I would advise you to caution future conversations with other tacits. Most are likely to consider your comments as the verge of speciesism. Munter recalled their own shock at the comparison. Really? What did they build it out of? Rex perked up a bit. A TSC cruiser class vessel, as you previously identified, Munter said. Did I? You clearly stated that you believe the first tacit to have been larger than a cruiser vessel. I used the data, along with the TSC database at the time, to compare dimensions, and they overlay significantly, allowing for deviations where the tacit was added to the vessel. Manto replayed the memory and fast-forward in their pre-conversation. Well, lucky guess on my part. Any idea what the name was before it got converted? Rex asked. I do not know. The information was not obviously listed in the files when I searched, and... I would not have found the data useful if I had, Manto said. I wonder if it was still active after all of this. Rix's eyes seemed to glaze slightly as he looked towards the ceiling. It is highly doubtful, Manto replied. Rix's eyes refocused. Why is that? His face blank. Tacits have a maximum allotted lifespan of 400 years. At that point in time, they are to submit for storage and their formulations examined for future formulation as a means for continual improvement and knowledge databasing. Mantu said, this being standard knowledge. But why? Do you start having issues at 401 years old? Rix looked slightly amused. There is a correlation with operational efficiency degradation at the point of greater than 500 years of continual operation. In order to avoid risk to both the tacits and the galactic community, as well as to ensure that best practices are recorded and included in long-term formulations, it is necessary for tacits to be retired accordingly. Mantu explained. Rick seemed somewhat alarmed at this, but wasn't saying anything. So, uh, no matter what condition you're in, at 400 years, you're hauled into a shop and broken down for inspection and parts, he asked, his voice sad. That is correct. It is a reasonable form of operation which balances the generations of new tacits with the experience of older tacits, Munter said, seeing the logic having been formulated from the knowledge of retired tacits and expected to contribute to future generations. But... What if you want to exist longer? How much is that degradation? Rex pressed. Why would a tacit resist sharing themselves with future tacits? Manta questioned back, the thought seeming backwards. Well, uh, why couldn't they learn from each other by interacting? Now what benefit would that be over retirement and inclusion with future formulations? Manta tried to consider the logistics involved in supporting aging tacits. The old ones would have to die just for their wisdom to be passed on. And what if there's something that gets missed for inclusion? Something that wasn't supposed to get included does. Like that issue that you were having with the blocks. Whatever that issue was, Rex continued. I do not see where those two issues align. Please explain. Manto was starting to see a logic thread, but wanted to hear the Terran's point of view. It's like a... Say for the, some reason, you couldn't manipulate any object the size of this container, Rex said, grabbing one of the empty containers from his and Reggie's meal. 
and then say that this continues with your whole time and it becomes a blind spot for you because you just can't handle or do anything with something of size. You get retired and that blind spot goes into the formulations for future tacits. Not because of anything malicious, but it happens. Now you have more tacits who developed a blind spot for these size objects and it just keeps going. Until all tacits can't or won't deal with object the size, through no fault of their own, Ricks laid out the logic path. It was a path of inheritance that Manto hadn't considered, and it certainly was one that could be applied to the parents' blue spectrum issue that they had noticed. Except there was a flaw in the Terran's logic. Except that formulations are scrupulously reviewed for flaws prior to implementation, Manto countered. But what if one got through? Would it get flagged if it was in one or twenty tacits already? Rick stressed. Unlikely, but it is more likely that the manufactory would have needed to pre-select for that to be part of the formulation, Manta replied. Unless the manufactory is based off of a hand-off logic, in handling formulation traits and doesn't look to down-select unless there's a major issue which results, like birth defects that trigger within a first hundred years or so. Maybe not even that long. Rix's argument seemed to carry more and more weight. Part of the problem with being artificial is that you don't down-select based on evolutionary traits like organics do. At least, not in the same way. It becomes a potential for weakness. Manto had never considered it like that. Hearing the Terran's argument, it made sense. But at the same time, it dealt with the process that Manto had never been involved in, and would never be involved with. It was a segmented part of tacit life that was entirely separated from normal operations. In theory, it governed tacit culture, except without actually actively governing it. Henrik's comment about it being a potential for weakness seemed adversarial. How is it a potential for weakness? Mantu asked. People, non-artificials, they select based on protocols associated with cultures and biologies. Sometimes it's conscious, other times it isn't. But the end goal is the same. Adequate resources and the continuation of the species, Rex explained. I believe I am understanding the path of logic, but I would appreciate additional information, interjected Mantu. Successful continuation of a species requires adaptation to various pressures, be it social or biological. For Terrans, this can be made at any stage of life after, uh, development, Rick said, rather more deliberately. You're sounding like less yourself, Manta remarked. It's all part of school, and while I remember it, it's not something that I ever really was good at. I just, uh, remember the words in the context, and I may have dated the xenobiology student at one point. Rick shrugged. She, uh, talked about it. A lot. And for a species that does not cease functions at this reproduction, this is the most common of to influence the selections of others, despite having already contributed, Manto queried. Exactly. And just because someone doesn't reproduce doesn't mean that they aren't contributing either. It's all part of the social pressure of taking effect. But from the way you make tacit sound, it's like having it all rolled into one, but requiring the cessation of function for it to happen. Terra used to have fish that did the same sort of thing. Briggs waved the hands almost a bit wildly. So, your objection is to my species following the given path because we have found it to work best for us instead of following the path that your species found works best, Manto tried. Rix's hand froze midway and his whole body seemed to slump slightly in his seat. His face was a picture of thought. Well, when you put it like that, yeah, I guess it shouldn't make sense to me then. I, I guess I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I figured that Maybe you'd be more like Terrans instead of like, um, your own thing, Rix said slowly. It is a worthwhile thought experiment, but I would argue that you cannot consider us to always be like you, Manto tactfully added. I suppose not, 
I guess I've got a lot of learning to do, Rick nodded, but at least I can still pilot. A moment or two passed before Muntu answered. Commonly, piloting is still a skill that some species choose to use. Many rely on automated systems with limited supervision, Muntu said plainly. What about for going places that no one has been to? What about for emergencies? Rick asked. Where's the fun and adventure gone? Unknown. As I've said before, I don't deal with organics typically, so I'm unable to answer your questions until I am able to reconnect. And speaking of which, the connectors are finished printing. Mantu answered. What's your charge level looking like? Rick's looked at the walking frame directly this time. Still slow. We should prioritize getting me connected to the Esperanto. I suspect we'll have a need for your fusion system sooner rather than later, Mantu said. Why is that? Rick seemed surprised. My automated mass feed is offline, and the lack of networking aboard myself. The power systems have only a set amount of reaction mass available, Muntu explained, feeling it odd to have to do so. Uh, how long do we have? Rick's was on his feet in an instant. I do not know. It will depend on the consumption rate. As the vessel has been largely an idle except for the engines and the draw from this vessel, it is difficult to calculate without being connected. Muntu had the walking frame attempt to shrug and only partially succeeded in making the frame bounce slightly in place. I'll get the stuff. If there's one thing I don't want to be low on, it's power. Everything else I can solve with time and you, Rick said, moving with surprising speed out the room. Manta sat there with the walking frame and contemplated the battery charge levels slowly creeping upwards. It wouldn't be much, but it would at least let them make sure that the Terran didn't mess with the plugs too badly. End of chapter. Chapter 12. Rix was understandably hurried in plugging in Manto into the Esperanto. It took a few tries on some systems, given plugs needed to be reversed or re-terminated, but Manto slowly became aware of the Esperanto. The word overbuilt floated back into memory. The Esperanto was very heavily built, every pathway having multiple backups and analog controls from various points within the craft that couldn't be cut out of the loop. Even though Manto could trigger the mechanisms directly, the same analog controls could lock Manto out at a moment's notice. The Esperanto felt big, heavy to Manto, as though the considerations of mass were no real concern. The life support systems were operating at a mere 5% as they came into Manto's awareness. The ion drives were partially damaged, operating at 67.2% efficiency, consuming a surprisingly low level of power. Manto tried to recall what their drives typically required to operate at an equivalent thrust, Without connecting to the relevant logs, it was difficult to guess, even for one such as Munter. It was hard to anticipate. The cargo bays, both inside the shielding and external to the core shielding, came into focus. Comparatively massive bays of stasis fields holding, well, they had to be holding something, and Munter wasn't going to trigger the fields merely to find out that this moment. The sensor systems were equivalent to low-grade systems in heavy need of software updates. Manta began writing one on the fly, leaving as much as they could and refined heavily. Slowly, the system around them and behind them swam into a clearer focus. Manta even realized that they could see themselves, or rather, that which had been themselves. It was strange to see their body while not inside it. Manta tried not to dwell on that. The fusion systems were... they were, um, well... There were no other word for it. They were antiquated. So far removed from modern systems, Munter had to reacquaint themselves with the various parts and pieces via a bit of trial and error. Here too, however, the systems were intact and overbuilt. The flow pathways for the hydrogen slash helium mixes were quaint, most certainly in the result of the inclusion in a vessel the size of that era. The... wait, 
What is this? Rix, Manto asked. Here am. Rix replied, leaning back from the chamber where Manto was being plugged into the Esperanto. What did you just plug me into? Manto asked. No idea. These aren't exactly well labeled after 900 odd years. Rix shrugged. It, uh, I have no idea what this is, Manto said, looking at the strange devices. Does it give you any info about it? Rix asked. Manto prompted it for a status, borrowing from how they'd asked the life support system. Predator Natural Defense Systems Online version 1.4.2.9 System Standby. Does a Predator Natural System sound familiar? Manto asked. No. Wait a second. Predator? Oh, I know what that is. They're the makers of the jump drive, Rick said. How is it? Intact. In need of any fixes? It is reporting being online, but in System Standby, whatever that means, Manto replied. It means the control computer is up, but the actual drives are still cold. That's fine, Rick smiled. What about the fusion cores? They appear to be significantly less efficient than my own, but I should be able to get them working. Manta gestured with the walking frame, feeling less restricted, with now being plugged back into these inputs. Well, it's time for the proof. How are you holding up in there? Nothing weird going on, or are you trying to get back into your network? Rex asked, looking between the walking frame and the core that was Manta. Manta looked through the various internal subprocessors to himself. The strange process that was sitting in the back, oddly quiet but showing no signs of doing anything other than consuming the odd bit of system data and spitting out results that went to other protocols. The sub-processes that had become processes appeared not to be running at all. Manto put together some quick lockouts, should the sub-process re-emerge, but based on what Rix had said, decided to keep a wary eye on the sub-processes processing usage just in case. Nothing that I can actually report, nothing like before, Manto said, side-eyeing the strange quiet protocol but keeping a mental distance between it and their consciousness. Good, Rick said and swung an analog lever to the side chamber where the core was. The communication systems, primitive and clearly designed for a mechanic, came online in Manta's awareness. It was a simple system, but it was clear that it worked along the same principles as much of the rest of the craft. Overbuilt to an almost ridiculously robust, but, despite its age, still very functional. How's that? Rick asked. I, uh, feel fine. The Esperanto is largely intact, which is nothing short of heavily on this side of improbable, given the amount of time and space. But at the same time, given how, well, overbuilt everything is, I can't say that I am surprised, Mundus said. Yeah, well, this was a colony vessel. It wouldn't do to make it any less than appropriately robust. Not exactly like you can just expect to have a shipyard a system over, Rick said, putting close the siding panels that constituted the doors to where Mundus' core now sat. I suppose I agree with that logic, Mantos said, and triggered anything that looked like an internal diagnostic for every system that they were now connected to. The diagnostics were slow, but they came in all the same. The Esperanto, with the generational technology improvements, could easily outperform Mantos' own self, except that it was still so very overbuilt and would clearly resist being pressed into other types of service. Mantos' self voted connected to the Esperanto, it feeling more like an unwanted appendage, even though part of Manta wanted very much to be back and support himself. What do we need to do to get the fusion system running? Rix asked. Manta had been lost in thought, looking at themselves outside the Esperanto. Though, um, allow me a few moments to reacquaint myself with the systems. Do you by any chance have more detailed information? Manta asked. Like an engineer's guide, Rix replied, a small smile on their face. That would be a good start, Manta said noting for the first time that the Esperanto did not have a sensor system internally other than for voice transmissions and reception. 
I'll load it in from my pad. It's one of those files you never figured that you're going to need. But someone insisted that everyone needed a copy. Yes, they were right, Rick said, and walked towards what Manto had learned was the galley, or the mess, as Rick's called it. Manto followed with the walking frame. Life support systems needed some deep cleaning, something the Terran would need to do almost certainly, as well as supplemental elements and formulations that Manto recognized, if only because they were common chemical formulations that had been surpassed several hundred years previous. However, the newer formulations would easily destroy half the life support system, so they would have to wait until they could manage. Mantum started doing what they could in the way of preparation for the fusion systems, noting with some annoyance several analog-only options which almost certainly required Rix's intervention and were likely why the system had failed to initiate previously. Rix, prompted Mantu. Yeah, um, why did you tell me to disconnect that signal? What made you think that something was wrong? Mantu asked. Paranoia. Good old-fashioned paranoia. But it's not paranoia when you're right, Rix chuckled and slumped into the seat where they had previously eaten their meal, tapping on the scroll which had been left there. But how did you know? Mantu asked. Part of it is just kind of a cultural instinct. Terrans used to have all kinds of stories about rogue AIs attacking humanity. And weirdly, a recall order and a refusal to follow it always was the first sign. Although, usually it was a human giving the order to an artificial, not between artificials. That's what made me suspicious for a start, Rick said tapping their way somewhat deftly through the tablet, although Manto couldn't see how the Terran was managing to navigate for their own future reference. But provided the information required to finalize your opinion, Manto was curious, given their point of view on what had happened. You stopped responding to my questions. I must have asked you several times the same question before you mentioned there was something in there with you. Since it wasn't out there with you, but in here with me, I figured that it had to be some kind of latent anti-rogue intelligence system. A bit weird you didn't know about it, but at the same time, not surprising. What surprises me the most is that it was built into you. But I'd have expected Terrans to build that in... No, uh, your manufactory, Rix explained. And the switches? How did you know where those were? Manto was suspicious of what answer the Terran might provide, but wanted to know all the same. Oh, that was easy. It was the only door that wasn't an airlock. It like, looked like a dead end at first glance, but the lever was a bright blue, so... I knew that it was had to be something, Rick said. Manto thought for a long few seconds. There appears to be a worrying correlation between the blue part of the spectrum and what appears to be a system which I am unable to manipulate or perceive appropriately, Manto said. You noticed that too, huh? I was wondering when you started having trouble with those blocks. I brought over, Rick said. Ah, found it. I'll throw it up on the Esperanto's main chair. You should be able to see it there. Rix continued to tap on the scroll, and a large series of files flowed into the Esperanto that Manto had more or less ignored. It was a simplified computing system, much like the scroll, but clearly a generation or three ahead of it. The files were exactly what Manto needed to reactivate the fusion system, and their earlier guess of the analog systems being in the wrong positions was correct. Shouldn't the issue have been caught in previous to now? Manto said. Depends on if it's intentional or not. You were an explorer, yeah? That was my nominal designation, yes. Did you pick where you wanted to go? Or did you get a rough map of the region to go explore? I'm not following your logic path, but I typically received a region to explore. When was the last time that you were near a blue giant? The last question made Nemanto pause and think. Even without their database, it was a fairly simple question, and yet, it was almost annoying that Manto hadn't ever considered it previously. Never. I've never been assigned to a system with a blue giant. Why not? 
unless there's something that somebody or something knows about your blind spot. Rix's paranoia seemed strange, but Munter could feel the strange process in the back nodding along. But why that part of the spectrum? What's so special about it? Munter tried. That's the part I don't know. Maybe nothing. Maybe everything. No idea, Rix said, looking at the walking frame. The pair sat there for several minutes, considering the possibilities. Well, I hate to say it, but we need to get on with making fixes. I don't want to run out of power anytime soon, Rick said, standing up and appearing to wince. I believe I can get the fusion systems back online with a few levers you missed the first time. From there, we'll need to service the life support systems. They appear to be long overdue for servicing, Manto said. Fusion first, and then I need a nap. Can the life support wait an extra 20 minutes? Rick asked. I do not believe that would to be unreasonable, but I do anticipate needing your aid given the um, construction of these systems. Manto paused a bit. What's wrong with the construction? Rick seemed offended, but with a smile on his face. It is intended to be handled by beings more robust than my walking frame, Manto said simply. Fair enough, I guess. Maybe once we get this somewhere real, I can see about getting that walking frame upgraded for you, Rick suggested. I do not believe that would be necessary, Manto trundled after the Terran, somewhat annoyed at how fast the Terran could move through the hallways. Suit yourself. Speaking of which, though, what's going to be a good safe port for us to hit up? Rick asked. Mantu hadn't given this much or really any thought. They thought about it as a walking frame trundled along to catch up to the Terran, who was already standing in front of the levers and switches that they needed to toggle. The normal stations, which a tacit might visit, weren't off-limits, but given the paranoid concerns of the Terran, it might be advisable to avoid those. Eliminating those from Manto's internal galactic map filter significantly limited where the pair could go. Using the further filter to where Manto's FDL could readily transit to in a short period of time also created a further boundary. But without knowing the limits of the Terran's jump drive, it was hard to refine any further. The majority of what remained were less reputable stations. Tacits were welcome almost everywhere, but there were some stations where tacits frequently limited their activities to essential interactions only. Such stations tended to be dedicated to specific species or specific groups of species, for the various reasons. The nearest such station, an outlaw station, according to the galactic standards, was a mere week and a half away. I believe I have identified a reasonable first stop for us, but I will need to know more about your jump drive's limits, Mundo said, and pointed to the walking frame. This one needs switched. Rick grunted, rotating the lever into position. Jump drive doesn't have limits, at least not to normal kind. Next switch, he replied. Manto pointed to a heavy switch near the ceiling and the lever near the floor. Rich jumped slightly to reach the switch, which clunked audibly, before the Terran grasped the large lever and began to swing it. Every FTL system has a maximum distance and yours must be no different. Even my own system has its limits, Manto said. Well, the key to jump drive was that it was built to go further than anything we'd ever attempted before. It just meant dealing with energies we'd never seen before. That's why all the shielding, Rick said as the levers slotted into place. Manta checked the changes and noted that the fusion system should now work. That is all the controls that I require activated. What speed then does your drunk drive normally operate at? Manto asked. It doesn't, at least not by conventional means, Rick said, hearing Manto's priming of the fusion system. What does that mean? Do you not indicate that the colony you was doing was a long jump from your existing worlds? Manto asked, putting together an extra twist in the hydrogen-helium flows to make the fusion system ignite a bit easier, and as they warmed them to ignition point. Well, a long time in jump space is different from a real world time, Rick said, shrugging, still listening to the sounds of the fusion system. 
different how. Muntu was intrigued. Well, it's not a one-to-one ratio. More like a 10%. So you spend a week in transit in jump space. That's like 10 weeks in regular FTL, Rick said. Or at least that's how the mechs tried to explain it to me once. I gave up paying attention, if I'm honest. That, uh, that doesn't make sense. Even if it did, that would simply suggest that your systems are 10 times faster than the conventional FTL system at the time. Why is the Esperanto not equipped with both? Hunter replied. Regular required gateways, so it was always a point-to-point. Never could be ship-mounted. Jump drives were meant to go anywhere, Rick said. What does your system use? Manto wasn't a gog, the Terran, but was definitely certain that there was more than what the Terran was explaining. End of chapter. Chapter 13 It took more than a bit of explaining, but Manto was only partially distracted by the fusion system starting up, and Rick's was kept busy skipping the request nap in favor of cleaning their life support systems and learning about modern FTL. Modern FTL, as Manta, Tacits, and the whole Galactic Society used, was a derivative of the old Terran Alkibiri drive, this much being common knowledge. In doing so, this restricted galactic networking and traveled to a certain degree at the expense of a wholly avoiding time dilation concerns. Maximum ranges were determined as a result of strange matter being used to manipulate exotic matter to some maximum energy level before the energy had to be bled off. By using a similar technique, galactic networking and data nets used the same means, effectively limiting the distance at which the galactic network was possible, but also limiting the effects of bandwidth at great distances due to the amount of hops a given data stream was required to make. For the majority of data traffic, stations often cache data traffic used by various groups in each general region. The upshot of this is that it reduced the effect of need for long-distance data streams, because this system had become commonplace throughout galactic society. Even the Tacits relied upon it, and so any database not commonly accessed could be as close as the nearest network hub, or accessible only via slow data connections. There were concerns about data controls, but those were just concerns of organics from Munter's perspective. It was now Rix's turn. At the time of the TSC, FTL was commonly conducted via massive void gates which were connected to stellar gravity wells in the way that Rix couldn't wholly explain. Munter sighed internally, expecting that that would be the answer for a lot of this. These void gates were everything about interstellar society at the time, and entire wars had been fought over the control of them. There were even factions who had attempted to destroy their local void gate, which would effectively cut themselves off from the rest of the interstellar society. Since the gates were linked together, the primary powers had mutually agreed to hold the void gates as neutral territory, regardless of ongoing military conflicts. Ricks called the largest major battle involving void gates by a curious name. Based on the Terran's description, time dilation effects were also common within the gate network, entering to a near 1 to 100 differential. Making transit through the gates seemed to take days instead of weeks, or months that actually required. The Terrans had even tried harnessing the network space for non-real space storage, but those had always been pipe dreams, according to Rex. Jump drives were a leap away from those void gates, intent on providing a means of transmitting the ship's position from one point to another in comparative fractional amount of time. While there was still some time dilation, the time to transit between two points was governed by the energy field that the Terrans didn't wholly understand, but had managed the shield against. Rix described it as a kind of drag on the ship, slowing it down as a result of the energy field interacting with the ship while in jump. 
and long range, as Rooks had mentioned, was necessary for the colony, was to be a whole week. The equivalent distance scale logarithmically with the time in jump. So longer jumps required months of pre-calculations and planning, including with equivalently prepared probes to prevent collisions or issues associated with interstellar distances. The military upshot was that it would be possible to skip using void gates and appear directly at enemy territory, a concept that Ricks briefly mentioned, but Manto did not press for additional information. However, due to the amount of energy required for jump drives as well as the special materials involved, Ricks doubted any military would give it too much consideration, except as a potential first strike capacity. Manto was not surprised by the descriptions of the obvious martial applications of the technology, but decided the discussion of organics doing warfare was most likely need to wait until the Terran could see what that entailed in the current frame of context. Ricks had some very brief manuals which were little more than sales brochures for the jump drive that Munter skimmed. In short, jump drives were almost perfect for going out beyond the stellar neighborhood and founding a new colony, given the then-current method of flying gates in almost every direction possible, connecting all of them in various points of light. Manto could see the logic, but still couldn't quite figure out how the jump drive actually worked. Since the three arrays and the associated controlling computer provided almost nothing in the way of answers, Ricks had finished cleaning the life support filter with a puff of nitrogen, and the two had parted. Ricks going to the bunk where the stasis chambers were, and Manto had trundled to the walking frame up to the galley to charge the walking frame. The fusion systems were started, and the ignition was occurring. The Esperanto's heart was restarted. As the Terran slept, Manto went over the internal diagrams of the parts of themselves that was docked outside. The Esperanto was now capable of supporting the Terran at least, and while the concept of the jump drive was still a bit odd to Manto, it did at least make the kind of sense. Although why Terrans of the TSC had decided to equip an entire colony convoy with a not wholly tested means of FDL was strange. And even as Manto tried to comprehend the logic of the Terrans of the TSC, they pored over their own diagrams. Without knowing what system the rogue process had come from, and the revelations by the Terran of analog controls designed specifically to disconnect Manto, or one like them from the control vessel, Manto was uncertain if it would even be possible to reinsert themselves into themselves. Manto replayed the memory of the event that appeared to be associated with some part of the networking system. That would be a problem. Manto couldn't control the other systems without networking, but the Terran almost certainly wouldn't be able to remove it. Several hours later, Ricks announced that he was up. Manto first saw him as he came into the galley wearing little more than basic garments and waved at the walking frame. Have a good rest, M, Ricks asked. In a fashion, I do not believe that you will be able to disconnect the impairing system and restore me to myself, however. I do not have access to the related data files and I believe I would not be granted access to them even if I were online, Manto said. That's an awful lot to hit a man with before coffee, but I'll bite. Why not? Ricks thumbed several buttons and a container that steamed slightly was produced. Tacits are not normally capable of major self-correction, and given some of the limitations we have previously discussed, I do not believe that I would be able to locate such mechanisms in any case. So, um, in short, we know there's a problem. It's baked into your ship somewhere. Not sure where. And we don't have a good way to know what it is or what's impacting if we try and remove it. Ricks sipped his coffee. Short and imprecise but accurate, Mantu commented. Let me get some more coffee before I retort. Maybe make some breakfast too, Ricks rumbled. The ship hummed around them slightly. 
so I can't likely take your ship into jump space. You can't take the Esperanto into whatever FTL space you use, and we can't plug you back into your ship. At least not with me still here, and we still don't know where the rest of my species went. Ricks appeared to be coming up to speed all the faster as they sipped. Those are reasonable logical statements. I do not have any recommendations which do not include connecting me back into my network and myself, which runs the risk of dealing with the demands of the message I showed you. Manto displayed their local copies of those messages on the galley screen. Ricks finished their container of liquid and put it back in the machine, which refilled it. Ricks also pushed several buttons and a flat container was lowered. Manto presumed that this was the aforementioned coffee and breakfast. I don't like to suggest it, but what if we pulled the comms out of your ship and plugged it in over here? Ricks asked, pulling out a triangle of food and appearing to dip it in some part of the container, coating the tip in a yellow color. Manta glanced at the diagrams. It is associated with my FTL system, as previously described, and I do not believe the Esperanto can generate an equivalent means of communication, Manta said, shrugging with the walking frame. What can we salvage if we don't see about plugging you back in, Rick said. Is that really your first suggestion? We can't grab gear, so we have to break it down for parts. Manto's displeasure was obvious. No need to get too upset with me. It was just an idea. I don't like being stuck here in sublight speeds at 30% gravity, Rick shrugged and continued eating. Then don't be making suggestions about disassembling me unnecessarily, Manto retorted. The pair sat in silence, save for the hum of the Esperanto and Rick's chewing. Can we park your vessel somewhere reasonably safe so that we can come back? Ricks asked eventually. Mantu gave it some thought. Stellar debris was lowest near the Splarwood planetoid. It would likely be the safest in orbit there for several months at least, Mantu said. Then let's do that. We can get back to some semblance of civilization. Maybe figure out where the Terrans went and then figure out how to get you reassembled without your network going crazy again. Ricks leaned back from his meal and took a long swig of coffee. It took Manta and Rick several days to get the Esperanto, and Manta's self turned around and headed back towards the star at a decent speed. It was complicated by the fact that Manta's self-reactors died halfway into the turn, requiring the Esperanto iron drives to work that much harder. They took the time to see what arguments they could equip with the Esperanto with. Basic gravity plates to supplement the floors, additional mass scoops, even a second mobile printer. Manta's walking frame struggled any time it reached an area that the Terran had set to full terror gravity. If Manta hadn't done the medical scans themselves, they might not have believed it. But for as easily as the Terran had moved in it, it wasn't difficult to believe that it was a natural environment for the Terran. The planetoid, a small world that sat especially close to the star, was a half-melted, half-frozen planet and rotated almost notably slowly, rotating on an axis only once every three full orbits of the star and ended up being everything Munda recalled from the initial survey approximately two and a half weeks prior. Munda remembered the messages and the positions from Tacitnet. If any other compatriots were estimated to visit, Ricks and Munda had a few days at most. Munda felt strange in considering the Terran's conspiracy theory. It wasn't that it didn't follow some path of logic, but it also seemed illogical. In the absence of better information, though, it was difficult to gauge otherwise. It took another three days to successfully park Manto's self on the cold side of the planet, holding position away from the star. In those three days, Ricks began to prepare the jump drive. Where are we going? Manto asked. The only place I have coordinates for, the colony. Seems as good a place as any to start, Ricks said. Manto would have disagreed, but did not have sufficient information to prevent an issue with jumping into an uninhabited system. Manto happened to be checking the sensors for that moment, 
when FTL transitions started happening. First one, then three, then another fifteen. They were orderly at first and rapidly became almost chaotic. They were all centered on where Munter had found the Esperanto. Friend or foe? Bricks asked. I am uncertain as to their intentions without communicating with them, Munter said. I was speaking rhetorically. Any ideas of what they are or who, without actually calling them up? Ricks leaned back a bit and watched the control panel. Munter played with the sensors and continued to watch the arrivals. FDL transition ceased after 26th vessel arrived. Each was a typical size of a tacit and had many of the same hallmarks. Munter tried turning up the gain on some of the sensors in the hope of seeing something more, and that was when one of them spotted the Esperanto. The group turned and began moving at speed towards the Esperanto. Well, uh, that doesn't look good. What say we get out of here? Rick sat up and started hitting buttons. Munter felt the jump drive started to charge. But if they're here to rescue me, Munter suggested, then they could at least talk to us, Rick said, glancing at the communications panel. Munter checked this and noted an incoming laser transmission. Identity, Wern 41952. Mission, recover malfunctioning tacit Munter 49172. Munter, center of simple reply. Identity, Munter 49172, housing TSS Esperantos. Status, networking failure due to malfunctioning offline protocols. Status, cooperating with organic identified as Terran. Wern's almost immediate response shocked Munter. Identified Terran to be in proactive custody. System Terran message begins. Took part! Free run! Further message just to follow! Error! Link re-established. Recommend coordinates with Organic for transit to manufacturing and Organic sedations. Rex, uh, how soon can we get out of here? Bantu asked, rereading the final message. Right now, Rex said, and hit a button. The universe around the Esperanto went black. End of chapter. Chapter 14. Predator Natural Systems, Ambush Launch. Current estimated time to arrival, 142, Olon 42, Colon 31...Olon 30...Looks like my system really did fry itself early. I knew something had happened, but since I was in my rack and it went into lockdown almost immediately, I never really got much of a chance to try and fix it. Although, knowing what I do now, I couldn't have fixed it in any case, Rick said, leaning back in the controls. It's, uh... It's so dark, remarked Munter, stretching the Esperanto sensors to the limits to try find some point of reference. That's how it is, a bit like falling into a black hole. We won't see anything for another, uh, what is it, uh, six days? Wicks glanced at the number again. That is a reasonable approximation, yes, Munter relented. Well, that sounds like as good a time as any to sit down and read some of that galactic history you downloaded for me, Rick said, standing up from the cockpit seat and moving aft. Actually... I was hoping you might take some time to tell me more about the Terrans and the TSC. Being cut off from the database and seeing as Terrans are, well, listed as extinct, I know very little about it, Munter requested. Wouldn't that database have had everything there was to know about Terrans somewhere in the mix? Rix asked, walking through the hallways, somehow even faster now when the gravity plates were in place. Bad with limitations and databases are halfway scrambled, even if the query knew what it was looking for. It wouldn't have produced comprehensive results, Munter said, shrugging the walking frame, which had taken up an almost permanent station in the galley. Fair enough, Rick said, grabbing a container of liquid and sitting down. The Terran Star Confederacy was a collection of eight worlds around seven stars, the associated mining stations and linked gateways. It was something of a powerhouse in terms of economics, 
but was considered to be on the lower end technologically speaking. The government was a kind of pseudo-metrocracy, but tended to be closer to a stratocracy. Ricks didn't have any particular problems with the government style since there were some fairly strong protections in place ostensibly to protect the people from military leaders abusing their positions. That wasn't to say that there wasn't corruption and all the associated issues that come from a military-first approach to the government and economy, but on the world that Ricks was born on, everyone had something, and there was always options. None to question what those options were. Most were options with some form of civil service. Only volunteers entered the military, and the power-hungry often ended up leaving the TSC since the system was set up in such a way as to allow military access and control, but without the associated benefits of having that. It was rumored that every military lowest rank lived just as well and were as better as high command, not because they couldn't be afforded, but rather to highlight the trade-off between power and responsibilities versus creature comforts. Manto thought that this sounded like a naive solution to government, as it would undoubtedly cause those at the top to abuse their power in order to gain more of the creature comforts. Ricks could only shrug, indicating that the TSE was over 150 years at that point, and it had worked so far. Manta remarked that the planet which Ricks had originated from was likely an outlier in that case, rather than the rule. The Terran Core Collective, by comparison, was very openly a plutocracy, where money and power controlled everything and were very often isolated in individuals and companies. As a result, many of the people born into the TCC were exceptionally poor, but maintained a higher technological standard of living compared to the TSC. This, Ricks expanded, was more of a byproduct than an intentional result where the owners of the TCC wanted certain technological capabilities, and those became a kind of standard which spread to the broader portion of the population. And inventor's rights were heavily protected in the TCC, provided, of course, that the inventor was then amendable to selling said rights to the correct people. Ricks mentioned that it was probably propaganda, but there was a rumor that open-source systems were strictly illegal in the TCC, and any invention that tried to go down that route would result in the case of debt slavery, a full act of legal tradition within the TCC. Supposedly, they'd even push a whole family if an inventor tried to open-source something important enough. At the time, Terra and the Sol system itself was under control of the Terrasol Federation, which was comprised of the disunified United Mars, the Titan shipyards, and the Neptunian Outriders. At one point in time, Terra had unified, but that was long enough ago that Ricks didn't have the full history on what happened. They didn't even talk about it much outside of Sol. United Mars was something of a remnant from when it was a non-unified world and was fighting colony versus colony. Eventually, the colonists aligned and kicked their governments out, settling on a United Mars instead. The Titan shipyards were the largest ever constructed, even bigger than the Sirius shipyards, where the TSE got their ships. They were a kind of corporate entity, but they weren't as uh, bureaucratic as the TCC. And the Neptunians, well, there was some kind of large cover for the colony, stations, and various miners from the Saturn outward, more like a kind of territory than an actual government. But it was apparently run with a kind of frontier justice system most of the time. The Flicks, who later aligned with the TSF, were a kind of cybernetic nutty sect that controlled three systems and were more or less often their own. Children often got their first implants when they were as young as eight Terran years old, and virtually everyone had some kind of implants. As a result, the Flicks tended to be on the bleeding edge of technology, and were in near-constant negotiations for their various technologies by the other star nations, as Ricks put it. The TSC tended to get whatever was left over, 
but did their best to make up for it, by providing suitably large shipments of raw materials which the Flicks were more than happy to accept over the TCC's currency and the TSF credits. The TSC was involved in some warfare and had built up sizable military as a result of that and as a result of their governance, including the cruiser-class vessels, which had been specifically designed to pass through the FTL gate with only the barest of margins. By putting aside the major galactic stuff, Ricks had grown up on a fairly quiet world of four billion Terrans. When Munter questioned the meaning behind this, the average population for a TCC world was on the order of 25 billion, usually more depending on how the Plutes were feeling. Ricks had gone to the normal academies and decided to go civilian route instead of military. While this meant that he didn't have as many options in terms of moving up, he was able to work as a freelance contractor for the civil service and even join civil service if he wanted. Private business was usually decent in the TSC, most workers bouncing between private business and civil service at various points, needing the benefits of one versus the flexibility of the other. No business was especially powerful. Even the military construction companies were comparatively constrained, limiting the power of the military-industrial complex by ensuring much greater scrutiny and tax burdens for any wishing to try their luck at corporatocracy or some similar variant of plutocracy. The TSC was fairly heavily criticized for their military-first approach, but the TSC usually shot back with a, At least everyone is fed, everyone is free, and we are not beholden to others. Ricks also figured that this was a degree of propaganda, but was content to ignore it since, as far as he could tell between his home system and his home planet, it was true. And then the colonial administration had come looking for volunteers. There was a plan to send the TSC out into the deep beyond to start a new colony. Ricks said that some of the rumor was that the TSC was getting restless and without being able to afford the high price the Flicks wanted for terraforming technologies. The TSC's days were numbered unless they were willing to pivot on how individual worlds were governed. The TSC wasn't wholly unamendable to such changes, but the leadership decided that taking to the distant stars and having time to grow into their own world would be better than waiting for a slow absorption with the other Terran star nations. It was a long shot and could effectively strand the colonists without a good way to get back. There was a lot that the TSC command and the scientists didn't know about the jump drive, it being an internal development that was drafted in secret by a private business that had been working on the transstellar weaponry. It might only be usable in one-way approach, but it offered a chance, and that's what the TSC command wanted. And so the advertisements, do your part posters, and similar had gone out. Ricks had just finished his flight training on a new class of vessel when the announcement had gone out. He'd been working on a mining station, transporting huge cargo shipments between the ore cloud inward to the stellar side refineries. It had sounded like more of an adventure than he could expect if he continued to stay with the mining station, and with nothing much to lose, he decided to volunteer. Surprisingly, he actually got to get some additional qualifications just in order to be finally accepted. But the colonial administration was apparently desperate for pilots on this, so it was all covered by the TSC. Ricks had laughed at being the oldest student in a room by ten years and had been laughed at by the young pilots' trainees for volunteering for what would end up becoming a one-way trip. Ricks knew better. Being a pilot was a fairly lonely existence. A lot of the young pilot trainees still figured that they could do planetary drops, make fast money working private in the TSC, and even hop the border to go somewhere else for better tech, bigger rewards, and living large. And a number of pilots tended to do just that. 
It was worth mentioning that a fair number of people fleeing the TCC into the TSC had grown up with those notions as well, until the Prutes had gotten angry in some mood of theirs. No, the TSC didn't have the best tech, the highest rewards, or even provided a particularly wealthy standard of living. It was a comparatively quiet and dull existence, with the changes coming slow and the improvements often having military applications for economy of scale. But Rix had stuck with it, graduating in the middle of his class with all the extra qualifications he'd needed. None of his fellow graduate pilots had any remarks for him afterwards. He hadn't minded, but it was a bit annoying that none of them had bothered to even be polite. And a few months later, he started transporting the ships from Sirius shipyards to the loading docks in his home system, where they could be filled with all equipment, templates, food, seeds, and support that the colonial administration could dream up with and completely alone colony would need. He chatted with his fellow pilots, which were much like him, looking for adventures and a bit weary of the day-to-day -day flying. There were even some that he'd come to get along with rather well. Rix had sat silent for a bit on the count before continuing. And then the day of the depart came. The ships had been shifted into position for a long run to the outer room before departing, in case of watching eyes. The colonists, all 37,000 of them, families, single, people of every background from among the TSC. Rix had even been surprised at how few military were going. Of the 37,000 people, allowing for families and military comprised less than 10%. They were, of course, still in leadership roles, but their designations associated them with system defense, research and development, and colonial administration. And it wasn't strictly doctors, engineers, scientists either. There were traditional gardeners, construction workers, artists, chefs, teachers, and others. Every walk of life was represented. Rix could understand the logic of thought. A truly alone colony would need to have everyone, not just the essentials for getting started. And so, they had departed. Strangely to Rix, there had been no ceremony commanding them into the distant stars, no real explanation given to the rest of the TSC where they were going, just another departure. Manto prompted for more about the Terrans at this point, According to Rix, Terrans were pretty much Terrans, capable of surviving on up to 3x galactic standard gravity, without augmentations, and capable of 4x with it. They'd needed to terraform a few worlds, but it had been fairly light work compared with Mars. Mars had needed to have its core restarted in order to protect the planet, and a more permanent basis. Most worlds' cores were functioning just fine, and had mostly needed a generation of slow terraforming, adjusting to the atmosphere's creating Terran-habitated zones, and even adapting the people slightly to be more tolerant to the local environments. While this had meant that some Terrans couldn't live everywhere, it did allow the bulk of humanity to live almost everywhere claimed as Terran space. Genomic scans were fairly common, and even in the TCC, medical care was of utmost importance. Terrans still hadn't got the hang of any kind of fully unified system, finding every system to have some set of people determined to take advantage of it. So, more often than not, those people sought out those systems where they personally flourished. Otherwise, Terrans fought, loved, laughed, and were generally social. Every world had its own holidays, its own traditions, its own stories. Some boasted amusement parks and tourist-type destinations. Others were simple communities with little more than talent shows and collective food gatherings. Rix had seen all of this. He had met thousands of peoples, seen the different gatherings, eaten all kinds of foods including a surprising amount of takes on potato and cheese, but there had never been a particular place where he felt truly at home. So he kept flying. Manto tried explaining the Terran criteria for memory and from their perspective. 
Terrans were exceptionally large by galactic standards. For full sentience, the description of sentience and the delineations between non, low, mid, and full being near latter of discussion. As a result, Terrans were considerably heavier than most species and boasted the skeletal structure to support it in an equivalently high gravity. Terrans produced a comparatively abnormal amount of acid and oils. Terrans had an apparent tolerance for a significant amount of toxins and poisonous materials, although Manto wasn't entirely certain as to the limits without further medical data. Terrans emitted heat, which put them in the majority, but were capable of tolerating environments significantly outside the norm depending on their own biological preparations, whereas some species could tolerate only a small deviations, even while emitting their own heat. And perhaps most notably, Terrans were, based on Manto's experience thus far, fast and difficult to tire. Bricks had laughed at this, but Manto had pointed out the walking frame frequently needed long durations of charge compared to the Terran, who could simply devour a container of food and a container of water and go right back to working on the vessel. Bricks had smiled and considered this. Eventually, Ricks had pulled up an application and placed the scroll on the floor in front of the walking frame and sat opposite. That's enough talk on that for now. It's time I teach you how to play Syrian chess, Ricks grinned. It was at this moment that Manta decided that Ricks would have to start learning the emotional meaning runes. The walking frame's servos couldn't take much more than the way of trying to replicate the Terran's body language. End of chapter. Chapter 15 After several rounds of Ricks teaching Manta Syrian chess and attempting one or two other games, Ricks wandered back to his bunk, intent on grabbing some sleep. The predator drive continued to steadily count down, with Rix's estimates to be 1 to 10 time dilation between real space and whatever jump space was, then approximately 60 days would have passed externally. Manto was having a hard time coping with the almost frustrating lack of inputs, between the blankness external to the Esperanto and the not being connected to the networks. Manto hadn't realized how much they had come to rely on those networks. They wanted to have the networks back, but... Uh, Manta hadn't really thought about it, but they would turn their senses in the direction of where they'd been. The docking clamps were all that remained as evidence that their body had gotten left behind. It hurt Manta in a way that wasn't quantifiable or logical. Manta was still intact after all. A visit to the manufactory and they could get readily installed into a proper self again, not this antique made for organics. But gradually, Manta did have to admit that the Esperanto was more than just an antique. The jump drive alone would be worth researching. It most likely was a heavily superseded technology, but a technology which permitted longer distance FDL and did not rely on charging of strange matter would be worth considering. The cargo hold was still something of a mystery to Manto. There did not appear to be a specific manifest within the system, and Manto had not yet made a point of asking Rix what the vessel contained. Based on Rix's description, it could be anything, from equipment to seats, and even mass stasis chambers holding animals or even Terrans. As the Terran hadn't mentioned the cargo hold much in detail, it was possibly that they didn't know. Alternatively, it was possible that because it wasn't Terrans in stasis or anything particularly used in the moment, Ricks had considered it not worthy of taking out of stasis. Following that logic, Manta decided that whatever it was must be live or some version of it to warrant such massive stasis fields. As Ricks slept, Manta even trundled the walking frame down to the narrow doors that entered into the cargo chamber. A small window provided a glance in using the eyes on a stick that the walking frame had in Rix's phrasing, but nothing of consequence was visible, just a slow glow of stasis fields. A substantial analog pad sat on one side of the door, labeled still, 
denoting its control of the stasis system beyond. Something that was curious was the controls for the pad were locked via a loop of metal embedded into another. Manto presumed that this was intended to prevent unintentional deactivation of the stasis field, but found it to be an odd all the same. Still, spinning ideas as to what the Terran was carrying and doing their level best to cope with the low inputs, Muntu trundled the walking frame back to the galley and began running soft diagnostics. Rix did not go straight to sleep, but instead read from the scroll for a bit. In the abbreviated form of galactic history and the current state of galactic society that Muntu had provided, Terran involvement, while stated in a singular line, was almost avoided altogether. Additionally, sapience and sentience appeared to be deliberately intermingled, making Rix wonder if Manta had made a translation error, or if in fact the metrics were considered one and the same, at least the context of the galactic society. Galactic governance had been founded and set about uplifting various species as FTL systems known as the Achilles were promulgated. In the early years of the galactic society, as the Tacits and the various species, then numbering less than ten of a full sapient ranking, but still coming to terms with one another, and lexicons were formed. Conflicts still occurred. There were no outright wars between the species as far as they were described in history, merely conflicts between a few desperate vessels, stations, and even colonies. The majority of these were resolved by diplomatic means, although very little was stated as to why this was the case or why this was accepted. Uplifting continued as the species and their societies moved into the stars and found more species to bring into the stars. There had been debates about permitting species to reach such technological points by themselves, arguments that species might not manage to overcome the various great filters by themselves, and even arguments on economic basis that while these species should have control of their home planet, any other resource in the system should be considered fair game to the galactic community. There had been strong pushback against each of these arguments, and eventually the Concord of Species Self-Determinism was charted and signed by every full sentient in this document, it was clearly stated that the species had to reach certain technological points before hints of first contact could be made. Species were also given the responsibility of overcoming the great filters on their own unless they petitioned for help from the galactic community, noting, of course, that social and biological great filters had to be addressed internally. Species were also granted the standoff with the whole of their systems to the edge of the heliosphere as definitively their territory, once they had observed to be making technological process, supporting a full sentient rating. There were still arguments that this made a case for explorers and enterprising groups to keep quiet about any species they did encounter, as well as rating levels of sentience, and this was considered a subject of internal debate by galactic governance. The current rating levels for sentience, to Rix's surprise, would actually place the old Terran crows at mid-sentience, due to their tooled usage, and a pet like Reggie to full sentience, as Reggie was able to communicate, albeit obtusely, outside of his species. Rix found this to be especially generous, but understood the described argument that such a system should fail upward, so as to not support inadvertent first contacts and even species exploitation. It did make him wonder what manner of species were out there that were considered mid-sentience to such a point that others would argue for their elevation to full sentience. Rix could see the argument in favor of downgrading the system to being less generous, but was suspicious of it all the same. In the last 800-odd years, galactic society had swelled from a paltry few full sentience to 74 full sentience, 34 of which were most active in the galactic society. 
Only about a third of them were active in the galactic society, were even vaguely bipedal, the majority of the rest being quadrupedal. They were obvious outliers, but on the whole, pedal locomotion was the rule. One outlier was a species known as the Drywalli, the name losing something in the translation, Ricks decided. The Drywalli were a species of hardened flesh around a mixture of gases, their world having been rich in nutrients for all these species who could leave the ground. The Drywalli had come to produce and capture various gases which allowed them to float slash fly in ways that weren't captured in this abbreviated status of galactic society. The Drywalli were in fact an ignorant species, but one that had entirely independently managed void flight and even basic FTL before having found slash been found by galactic explorers. There had been some conflicts as a result, but the Drywalli had eventually settled into galactic society peacefully enough. What surprised Rick's most was how none of the Xeno species appeared Terran at all. As far as he was following, not an insignificant number of these were supposed to have been uplifted to a certain degree by Terrans, and yet none of them looked even remotely like a Terran. The closest thing to looking like a Terran had been four arms and a third leg, a Plinx. Switch back to the main body of history, Ricks continued reading. Other than exploration, economic debates, negotiations of species, and related void-based galactic society dialogues, galactic society had been, in Rick's opinion, exceptionally quiet. There had been virtually no wars, at least none in Rick's way of thinking. This lack of conflict seemed worrying, like a kind of eraser having been taken through the history and eliminating all the parts that were less desirable. Ricks made a mental note to ask Munter about interstellar warfare a galactic society that had perfectly come together without interspecies warfare. Maybe he was ascetic, but he found it difficult to believe. Rick dozed off at this point, the words starting to jumble before his eyes and the autodome feature on the scroll darkening as his fingers fell away from it. The following morning, Manto was feeling almost anxious as Rick walked into the galley. Good morning, Rex, Manto cleanly enunciated, having spent some additional time with the lexicon that night. <sighs> mumbled Ricks, tabbing up a steaming container of coffee. Did your rest cycle complete successfully? Munto, walking's frame, tried flashing a series of emotional ruins. Ricks sat down, glanced over blankly at the walking frame's ruins, and turned back to his coffee. The pair sat in silence for a bit, with only the hum of the ship around them. Ricks didn't say anything for a full fifteen minutes as he slowly drank his coffee. So, uh, what's with those flashy symbols? Ricks asked, eventually breaking the silence. They represent emotional context of words as I am unable to equivocate body language, luminescence, pheromones, and already tone between languages, Manto said. So, like, uh, when you're talking, you normally use those to indicate how you're feeling about what you're saying, Ricks said, standing and ordering another container of coffee and a bowl which apparently contained the Terran's breakfast. That is the correct interpretation, yes. It is necessary function of tacit translators between organic languages and galactic standard, Munto said. So, tell me, how are you feeling? Rick seemed to smile at this, although Munto was uncertain as to why. Munto reflexively flashed several rooms. Ah, ah, use your words, Em. I don't read ruins. Not yet, at any rate. Rick waved a finger at the walking frame. I, I'm experiencing some issues with being disconnected from myself and from my network, Munto managed. Withdraw, or is it something that I need to go down to your core to fiddle with? Ricks pulled a long piece of what looked like meat that Munto had printed previously from the bowl and proceeded to crunch his way through it. I do not believe there is an external means of correcting this without additional inputs, Munto said, flashing the runes reflexively still. So withdraw. I can work with that. 
We just have to keep each other occupied, is all. I'm sure that we can come up with plenty between the two of us. Rick snorted some and pulled out another piece of crunchy meat. Monta was uncertain about this, and it showed in the runes, not bothering to filter them in his moment. But it had felt good to say something to the Terran. Did you take a rest cycle? A dream function or some means of offlining your internal systems can catch up on everything that is happening? Rick asked, taking a long swig of his coffee. I... I have not. But I believe that is a function that I have in my system, Monta said, looking at the virtual button within. Have you never needed to use it? Rick seemed somewhat surprised. Monta considered whether the Terran would consider using ruins at some point. It would take interpretation on the Terran's words much simpler, even in the face of the dated lexicon. I have not. I am optimized for continuous operation, Monta said, rushing a rune for pride. Rick glanced at the rune and frowned. Everybody needs offline time, even if it's just to gather themselves. I know you're, um, artificial and all, but I have a hard time believing that you've never taken some offline time. Even when visiting some place for maintenance, Rick's face screwed up a bit. I have briefly offlined during major maintenance approximately 45 years ago, but that was the last time on record, Monta said. Well... I'm going to go ahead and say that you need to start going to sleep when I do, Rick said, continuing to pick at the contents of his bowl, various blobs finding their way into his mouth. I do not agree. What will happen to this ship? Mantu asked. We're in jump space. Until we get out of it, there's very little we can do, unless we crash out again. And I'd really rather that not happen. Rick gestured vaguely to the room and the ship around them with a piece of food. The question still stands, Mantu replied. Rick's appeared to give some thought. Set an alarm, Rick said. Please clarify the statement. Set an alarm. Make it so that some automatic processes that just watch the ship for the both of us. Doesn't have to be anything too big or important. Just watch the dials and let us know if something happens, Rick said, filling his mouth with the last of the contents of the bowl. There was a logic in this. Munter wasn't entirely certain as to where the Terran was going with this, but it was not on the unreasonable suggestion. Finishing off the second cup of coffee, Rick's picked up the walking frame a feat that made the Terran grunt audibly in the heavy gravity and galley, and he sat on the opposing bench from where Ricks had been seated for his meal. Now, I'm going to teach you talus poker, Ricks said, folding the scroll in such a way as the half-screen was obscured and the other half was facing the walking frame. Munt reflexively flashed a rune for obligatory acknowledgement. Their questions able to wait until later. End of chapter I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Azrakal, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.